Today we're going, looking at the introduction to this section, and it's some issues that Paul has about some of the abuse that was going on, the way that their lives weren't lining up with what communion was supposed to be. So we're going to look through this passage as it has implications for the Lord's Supper, but also we're going to look at it as it has implications for the church as the body of Christ, and then finally we will look through it as it applies to how we celebrate Christmas, which we will celebrate this week. Beginning with verse 17, Paul says, Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you. Earlier in the chapter, he praised them for being responsive to what he had told them, but he said, when it comes to this, I don't praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. Again, talking about the Lord's Supper. This was something that Jesus instituted with the disciples, and he said, well, originally it spun off from the Passover that the Jews celebrated regularly, but Jesus explained to them, the Passover is really about me. This bread is a representation of my body, and this, this wine that you drink is a representation of my blood. Now, people argue over, while well, some people, some churches believe that it literally becomes the body and blood of the Lord, because he says, this is my body, this is my blood. But I think when Jesus served it to them, it was rather obvious he was still using his blood and his body, and so he, he was speaking symbolically, metaphorically, but he encouraged them just as he did with baptism, to do this, to do this regularly, to do it as a remembrance of him. Now, in the early church, they probably started out celebrating communion every day as they were wanting to remember Jesus, and they would eat a meal together that they called the agape meal or the love feast, and then at the end, they would participate in communion. It was something that they did some of the problems that developed that we even see in this passage caused them to scale it back. And by Acts chapter 20, they were getting together once a week on Sunday and doing it then. Later on throughout church history, some people celebrate communion more often than others. Some people celebrate it less. But it's something that always the church was encouraged to participate in to remember Jesus. But now he's saying... Some of you are celebrating communion, but really you'd be better off not. You're coming together not for the better, but for the worse. And here's why. Verse 18, for first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it, for there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. So he said, when people are seeing the church oh, you guys are celebrating communion. That communion means you're all one. See, as I eat the bread and you eat from the same bread, that bread becomes a part of each of us, and, and we're related, we're connected. It speaks of the unity of the body of Christ, how all together as one before God. But he said, I look at you guys, and you are so divided. You're completely into different, you know, each of you have different little cliques and different people that you'll hang out with and others that you won't hang out with. Earlier in the book, he talked about some were saying, oh, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I'm of Peter, I'm of Christ. You pick and choose, and you make your own little segmented groups. 
And he said, that is completely contrary to the idea of communion. The word communion means to have things in common, to share together. And that which Jesus instituted at the cross, he made it possible for all of us to be together. And so for him, the biggest thing was that God's people would get along and act like they were one, act like they're connected and related somehow. And so for them, and they were all divided, it just made communion sort of a joke because they didn't really look at it as if they were in common at all. They were celebrating something that meant that, but for them, it didn't mean that at all. And so he said, that's like completely belying all the symbolism of communion, that you would be divided. But as he says, it's natural that there's division because there are always people who are troublemakers. The word that he uses there must also be factions. It's the word, the same word that's translated heresy. There are always going to be some people who are really off. But he said, it's okay when somebody is kooky, when someone is off, when someone is weird, because that gives the rest of the body a chance to be approved or to show what the body is made of. And so basically what he's saying is there will always be tests to your unity, but those tests give you an opportunity to demonstrate your unity. Now, Jesus' heart was that his people would be one. He prayed that in John 17 in his high priestly prayer. He said, Father, make them one. He said, make them one so that the world will know that you have sent me. It's most central to the truth of the gospel is that God takes people who are different and he puts them together and says, you're all in the same body. You're all connected. You're all related. And communion gets to the very essence of that. And Paul said, when you're divided, it makes people wonder, what in the world are you celebrating when you celebrate communion? But he goes on to say in verse 20, therefore... When you come together in one place, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. So first of all, the factions, the divisions, the cliques cause it to conflict with the nature of communion. But then he said, the truth is, when you guys get together for the Lord's Supper, that's the last thing on some of your minds. You're not intending to represent the, the death of Jesus the fact that he gave his body and he, he shed his blood for you. You're thinking of other things completely. For them, no doubt, they were thinking about the potluck dinner that would precede communion. Others thinking of other things. Sometimes we partake of communion and we don't even think about it at all. We don't even consider what it means. And that's why we can live in such a way that's contrary to that without even giving it a second thought. So he says, are you thinking of why you're here? Are you thinking of why you're celebrating communion? He goes on to say, for, verse 21, for in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What they were doing there is people who had the really good food the really good wine and everything, they would bring that, but they would meet their friends early. And so the poor people would usually be later to church because of probably lack of transportation and things like that. So they would, they would 
hog down the best stuff. And by the time everyone got there, the people who brought the good food had eaten the good food and had ultimately just, they were full, they were stuffed. And they had drank so much they were drunk. And then other people went without and didn't even have elements of communion. And Paul's going, how did that develop? How can you turn something that, that represents a sacrifice, something that speaks of a unity, and you can turn it into something that's all about you, that's just selfish? You get there and you can't wait to dig in. It would be like if when we have our Christmas potluck here, if there were people, certain people who have really good dishes that they make, that everyone loves, but what they do is they think, well, when I'm making this special casserole or whatever, there are certain people that I want to make sure get a piece of it. There are other people, I don't care if they get it or not. If it's left over, they can have it. And so they put a list of names on their casserole, and it says, only these people can take it, and once they've all checked off their names, then other people can have whatever's left. We would look at that and go, that's not the spirit of a potluck. That's not the spirit of fellowship at all. That's divisive. It's picking favorites. It's ultimately saying it's all about me and my friends and who I want to bless. There are people who will do something like this sometimes, and you know, as a pastor, they'll make something that they know I like, and they'll say, which you know means something that's not good for me anyway. I shouldn't eat it. But, you know, and they'll say, oh, I made my special dessert that you love, and I put a piece of it aside. I hid it over in the kitchen because I want to make sure you get it. Now, I appreciate the gesture, but again, that's not what it's about. It isn't about, well, let's make sure that he gets it or let's make sure that this person gets it. Well, they were turning communion into something like that, and it was a disgrace. And as we read on, we see not only do people overindulge at communion, which is so ironic, something that's about a sacrifice, but he says, what, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? No, I don't praise you. So there was also in their communion service a division in the body. It was very clear there are certain people who are the beautiful people, certain people who are at an elevated position, certain people who are well off, and there were other people who weren't so well off, and that was obvious too. The people who were wealthy were treated special, got special treatment. People who were poor were not considered at all. Maybe even to the point of they would say, you know what? If you can't afford to make a decent meal, why not just not bring anything at all? Your bean dish is just getting in the way of our other food. And so you'd feel like, oh man, if I can't, if I'm not dressed right, or if I don't bring the right food, or I don't, you know, I do the best I can, it's not good enough, I'm going to be embarrassed, I'll feel like I don't fit in. And he's going, how do you get this in communion? He said, you ought to be ashamed of yourself if in your communion service celebrating Jesus, there's some way in which people are made to feel inferior to other people. 
Doesn't the cross mean that we're all the same, that we're all alike? Didn't Jesus die to remove all of the artificial things that society uses to make some people better than others? It says he wiped out the differences between us that were racial. He wiped out the differences that were based on economics. He wiped out the differences that were based on sex. And he said, hey, you're all alike to me. Now share this, have this in common. You're all a part of the body of Christ. And yet for them, even in that communion service, it was saying something other than welcome. It was saying something other than look what we have in common. And so Paul said, man, when I see the way you're living, when I see the way you are handling communion, your factions and divided you're, you're selfish, you're thinking only of you, you're overindulging, you're making people who have less than you feel inferior, and you're celebrating the Lord's Supper. How ridiculous that is. And we can certainly see this, but let's zoom back a little bit and look at the body of Christ as a whole. Because that which is true for communion is true for us all the time as well. And if our lives reflect the values that are contradictory to why Jesus died, then our gathering together and saying, look at us, we're Christians. Look at us, we're the body of Christ. If the way that we live in some way is contradictory to that, if there's a cognitive dissonance in terms of you look at it and go, this doesn't match up, this doesn't make sense at all, then that's something, too, that the Lord would look at and say, I'm not praising you for this. Well, so how about it? The body of Christ, are we unified? It was the heart of Jesus for us to be unified. It was the one thing that he wanted to stick out. So is there division in the body of Christ? Of course there is. Many people see that that's the most representative characteristic of church is that we disagree and we pick sides. When it comes to communion, there are churches that have split off from other churches because of a disagreement on how to do communion. How ridiculous that is, how sad that is. When Jesus gave his body and blood to bring us together and we use it as something to separate us. But as he said, there are tests to unity because there are people who will try to divide the body of Christ. There are heretics or factions that will come up. And he says, you will show what you are really made of by how you respond to that. And it's true. There are always people who want to see things differently. There are always people who will say and do things that would divide God's people. And you can't get away from it, but how you respond to it defines whether or not his unity really matters to you. Here's how it works. I mean, there are some people who generally, because something happens that they don't like, they try to get other people on their side, thus divide the body of Christ. Now, the Bible makes it expressly clear that that's something that God hates, he doesn't soften words or mince words about it at all. He says, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination unto him, and one of them is the one who sows discord among the brethren. 
the person who tries to divide the church, tries to divide God's people. But here's how it works. You start, you know, somebody feels put out by something or they disagree with something or they have some kooky, unique perspective on something. And so they come to us and they try to get people to be on their side. They're offended by something, so they want to make sure that other people get offended by it too is usually how it goes. Because if they can get enough support, then maybe they can make things go their way. Maybe they can turn the whole way that things are happening so that it fits with the way they want it. So somebody comes to you, and they start griping about something that's happened or something that they don't like within the church. Well, what do you do? You listen to them, and you think, I don't know, this is no big issue to me. But I'm certainly not going to correct this person. I don't want to argue with them about it, because usually they're emotional and upset and angry, and I don't want them to be mad at me. I'd rather have them be mad at the church. So typically, in the guise of support, we just like, hey, you know, I understand how you feel, and, you know, I'll be praying for you. And for us, that may not at all mean I agree with you the church is horrible, but all we're doing is trying to get rid of them. And so rather than take issue with them, or as the Bible says, mark those who cause divisions among you, call them on the carpet, call them forward. Over in Titus chapter 3, Paul in talking to Titus says, uh, says this concerning these kinds of issues. He said, avoid foolish disputes and genealogies, contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. And then he said, reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. So he says, when there's somebody who's divisive, call them on it. Go, you know what? What you're doing is not edifying. What you're doing could potentially be divisive. Knock it off. And hopefully they'll, ooh, they may think, okay, I'm not going to talk to you again. But at least you've spoken up. And that's what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians when it comes to division. If there's someone who is divisive, then it's the job of the other people to say, you're not fitting in with us for the sake of unity. I'm going to be honest with you. You're off here. And if you continue to be off and to be divisive, we're going to deal with that. I'm not going to tolerate it. I'm not going to have conversations with you whereby you are planting divisive seeds concerning the church. Well, Paul says that's how it's supposed to work. Now, just think about how easy life would be and how easy unity would be if there was peer pressure on us to not be divisive. But instead, we typically go for what's easiest, and that is either throw flames on the fire or at the very least just go, okay, it's your problem, not mine, but, you know, I understand, therefore, I'm one of the good guys. And it causes people to believe that their divisiveness is actually something that's godly because there are a lot of people that they perceive of as godly who are supporting them and either by their silence or by think little things that they say. The body of Christ can't tolerate that. It can't tolerate those who are forces for division within the body. It's the worst thing that can happen within the body. And so Paul would say, you call yourself God's people? You call yourselves the body of Christ, and yet 
You're encouraging divisiveness and factions. You're someone who will, at least you'll never go out on a limb and, and stop someone from doing that which destroys the body of Christ. How can you call yourself that? How can you feel in good conscience like, oh yes, the body of Christ, and it's divided because no one wants to stand up and stop that division. No one wants to, to take on a divisive person. The Bible makes it clear. There's a time when we need to do that. And when you don't do it, then that which we say we are is just not who we really are. And then he goes on to say, when you come together in one place, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. So that brings up for us the question of why do we go to church? What is the real reason why we go to church? Now, each of us has a lot of different reasons why we go to church. Maybe someone we love wants us to go, and so we go with them. Maybe we like to see our friends. Maybe it's just a habit that we've formed over the years. Maybe we like donuts, you know, but there are all kinds of different things that can cause us to go, okay, I'm going to church today. But have you ever thought about why are you really doing it? As you go to church, is it really to commune with God and with his people? Is it really to participate in that which God is doing amongst his people? I mean, for me, I'll be honest with you, there are some days, like today, I was feeling really sick the last couple days, and I woke up this morning after having a rough night, and I didn't really feel like going to church. And what got me up and taking a shower and getting dressed and getting in my car, none of that was, oh, I get to fellowship with God's people. It was really... Dave, you're the pastor. <laughs> if you don't show up, it's going to be really awkward, especially right before Christmas. You know, oh, I could call someone and ask them to cover for me, but they're going to wonder, you could talk okay on the phone to at least communicate. Why don't you do that? And so uh, there are mixed motivations, but as I'm driving to church, I'm not thinking of that. As I'm preparing my heart to share God's word, I think, you know, it's the greatest privilege of my life to get up and to share with God's people, to be with them. I, I wouldn't want to be anywhere else today because I love the fellowship of the body of Christ. And I love to fulfill my role in what he has called me to do. And I look forward to maybe having an opportunity to leading someone to accept Jesus or to encouraging someone who's going through a tough time or, or, you know, whatever it is that God has prepared. By the time I get to church, I want to think about why I'm coming. And I think we should all do that and consider what is the body of Christ and what is my role in it? It's not just about whatever. It's, don't be a consumer of church. See, as he goes on to sit, talk about the people who get there first and and scarf everything up and overindulge at church. Church isn't about you. Church isn't about me. This isn't like Dave Rolf's church. You know, oh, it's what you guys are is the extras who I need people to be in an audience so I can do what I want to do. I need people to support the ministry so that I can be a pastor. I, I don't look at it that way at all. It just makes me sick if I would think that this church is somehow here for me, that I am the most important person in this church, that I am the prominent element. I'm not the star of the church. Jesus Christ is. 
And I'm just like you. I'm here because I want to bring glory to him. And I'm doing what God has called me to do, even as I hope that you are. It's not all about me. As soon as it becomes all about me, it's completely contrary to what the body of Christ means. Even as communion, if it's all about the person who's attending and participating, they just miss the point. See, the world doesn't revolve around me or you. And if the reason why we go to church is some selfish reason, then we've missed the higher motivation. Now, I understand there may be some people who go, well, yeah, I go to this church because it makes me feel good when I come here. I go to this church because I like the people that I meet here. I go to this church because it's really convenient and close to my house. Or all these other reasons, but work past that and go, why are you really here? And there are some much better motivations than those selfish motivations. How about coming to church because maybe God will say something that will change my life, help me not to be the way I am. How about coming to church because maybe there's someone there today who is really struggling with their life right now, and if I be nice to them, maybe it'll help them to realize that God loves them. Maybe there's some little thing I might say for someone that'll make all the difference. See, coming to church for selfish reasons is contrary to the nature of church. I, this morning as I was getting ready for church, um, my wife had a Christian TV show on. Christian, at least that's what they call it. But uh, I won't say which show, but it really did kind of encourage me for a while because it was just a super positive message of saying everything that makes everyone feel good. And that's just kind of their, this guy's spiel. And I was like, well, that's kind of nice. And it, it lifted me up for a little bit. And then I realized, you know what? The only time that it's ever been worth my time listening to teaching was when it made me uncomfortable at times. When it called into question the way I do things and caused me to wonder. Now, I'm not saying at the same time that, you know, I'm going to get up here and just try to beat everyone up and break everyone down. That's not it. There's an important balance. But in some way, if I don't feel corrected, I'm not going to change. And so the easiest thing in the world to do for a church is just to feed someone's flesh, is just to say all things that will make you feel good and feel wonderful and feel warm inside. It's a temptation. And it's certainly tempting to listen to that kind of pablum and, and think somehow that, oh, I've connected spiritually with some deep inner force. That's not what it's about. And Paul would say, think about what you're really coming to church for. Think about that connection, that transformation. Why did Jesus die for you? Was it to make you feel good? Was it to leave you the way that you are? Or did he die because he knew that was the only opportunity that you could have an eternity with God? Is if you would recognize your sinfulness, if you would realize where you've fallen short of God's glory, realize that he paid the price for you to be close with him. Think about it. Is that what we're here for? Or is it just some selfish thing? Now, having said all of that, we can see where what in Corinth was their communion practice 
was something that was embarrassing because it was contrary to the meaning of sacrifice and communion. And then as we zoom back, we can look at our lives often and church as we know it, and we would have to say, you know what? I have to admit, sometimes for me, church is about me. It's not about Jesus. I have to admit, there are times when I just want what I want, and I don't really care how other people are affected by it. There are times when as I come to church, it doesn't bother me at all that there are people here who have needs. I'm here for my needs. I'm not here to try to meet anyone else's needs. It's easy to fall into that kind of a mentality. But let's think for just a moment about Christmas. Because Christmas is a holiday that most of us celebrate. It's the day when we remember the Incarnation the day when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, the day when God became a baby, connected with us in that way. So what has Christmas become? Is Christmas, much like communion for them, an exhibition of factions and divisions? Is it an area where we fight and contend? For some of us, probably so. Look at the attitudes of people who are doing their last-minute Christmas shopping. Are they looking like they're celebrating a, the God's appearance on earth? Or are they just hacking at each other and, and pushing others out of their way? And how about when it comes right down to it Christmas morning and you get the presents? How's that work for you? Is it a time of gratitude and giving? Or is there division? Is there disputing about, well, you got this, and he got, they spent more on yours than they did on me, and what, what am I supposed to do with this? And how, just grumbling and complaining. I remember as a kid, Christmas for our family, all the relatives would get together, and it was, it always got interesting once my uncles got drunk, and, and then they'd be fighting, and there was all this stuff going on. And my grandmother, bless her heart, she's with the Lord now, but every year she made pajamas for everyone. You knew every year what you were going to get, grandma's homemade pajamas. And these pajamas were really, I mean, they would have extra arms on them sometimes. They would, one leg would be longer than the other. Hey, Jeremiah, are you looking for somebody? Oh, if she had her flowers yet? I don't see Stacy. <laughs> Here's your dad back here. I think he can figure it out for you. Okay, buddy, sorry we couldn't help. <laughs> we call them worship orphans. <laughs> Where was I? Oh, grandma's pajamas. Now, it, it got to be where every year it would be like, oh, man, wh why do we even do this? She's got all these pajamas wrapped up, and all of our cousins and everybody, you know, 30 pairs of pajamas or whatever, and you open it and have to act like you're excited, and so we really laid it on thick. Oh, grandma, pajamas, it's so great. And, you know, the boys would be more like, man, I'm so surprised. I haven't had pajamas since, well, last Christmas and the Christmas before, and... You know, it was just, 
it became a real annoyance. And so often that's what it's about. Oh boy, this person got me something. I feel bad I didn't get them anything. I saw a great one the other day on the internet yesterday on the news, and I thought it was funny, but Ann didn't think it was funny. But So you don't have to laugh. But there's this couple in Wyoming. I don't know if you saw this. But this couple in Wyoming, the wife had got her husband a present, and he snuck into it before Christmas yesterday and opened his present to see what he was getting. And she flipped out. She was so mad, they started fighting over it. And she ends up stabbing him in the chest with a kitchen knife. Now, I think he's still alive, so it's okay. But it's like, wait a minute. Happy birthday, Jesus. Oh, here's an expression of my affection for... How does Christian, how does Christmas turn into something like this? How does that, did anybody, what happened to baby Jesus? What happened to the spirit of the season? It's just completely nuts. And then in the same way, the selfishness, it's all about me. And then in the way that they did communion too, just pushing my way to the forefront and only wanting to do what I want to do and forget about people who have needs this isn't about them. This is about me. Don't bring me down with that talk of, you know, the starving children in Africa or something. You know, they have their problems and I have mine. Leave me alone. Christmas should be a time when our hearts are touched with the one who gave his life for us. And as a result, we're trying to figure out how we can give. And there are times and there are people who do this really well. I mean, so many of you participated in wrapping and preparing gifts for Pedregalis. And I heard from Pastor Chris Martinez down there this week, and what a blessing it was, the outreach, as we were able to go down and give presents to all those children in Mexico. And for me, it's a highlight of the Christmas season to be able to do that for others. Oh, you know, buy presents for people in my family, but it's not quite the same because they could usually go buy it themselves, and generally they can take whatever I buy and trade it in for what they really want anyhow. But the spirit of Christmas should be, wow, how about others? There are people in our body who, as you know, if you were here last week, said, we don't want anyone in our church who doesn't have a, who can't afford a nice Christmas meal to, to go without, and so they just made it available that anyone who has that need can do that. That's what I'm talking about. That's what Christmas is. That fits with Christmas. Not all this division, not all this selfishness, not all the criticism, the griping and complaining, the greed, the gluttony, all of that stuff. How, what, how is that about Jesus? And so we all ultimately at the end of the day on Christmas need to look and say, is the way that we celebrated Christmas something that would please God that he would say, I think you get it. This makes sense. Or, or would it be, what shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. You're actually, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. You weren't thinking of those who have less, how you could help them. You weren't thinking of letting other people go first. You weren't thinking of how you can bring some unity to your family and to the body of Christ and to the world peace on earth? No. That's the furthest thing from our minds on Christmas. But let's, this year, for Christmas, let's stop and think about what it really means. 
what's the real meaning of this holy day that we celebrate? Oh, people are all up in arms over because some stores call it happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. Do you think that's what Jesus would do, get all worked up about something like that? He probably often just wishes, I wish they would forget about my birthday. All this to-do, all this fuss. Have you ever had a birthday party where in the middle of the birthday party, everyone who's honoring you starts fighting with each other? I remember one time being at a, at a birthday lunch where it was all everybody's getting together, and they started fighting over the bill at the restaurant. And I'm like, forget it. I just took it and paid it myself. And how do you think Jesus feels? When we as a body say we're celebrating the body and blood of our Lord, when we as a body say we are the body of Christ, we're Christians, we take his name as our description, or when we as followers of Christ say, happy birthday, Jesus, it's Christmas again, look what we're going to do with it, and he looks at it and he goes, what? That's what you think fits? That's what's appropriate? The way you're acting is completely contrary to who I am and what I care about and what I want to be for you and in you and through you. So let's truly have an appropriate Christmas. A Christmas where we think of others, a Christmas where we strive for unity, a Christmas where we're selfless, a Christmas where we realize what we're there for, that it's all about the one who gave himself, who became one of us so that we could live for eternity with him. Let's not embarrass ourselves this year for Christmas. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your gift, the gift of eternal life that you provided by coming down here and living a perfect life and dying, rising from the dead so that we could know you personally. Lord, we're sorry for the times when we just don't represent that well. We repent of that. God, I pray that this year for Christmas that we wouldn't embarrass ourselves by acting completely contrary to the meaning of the day, to who you are, Lord. And for us as a church, that we would not misrepresent you, that we would not tolerate division in your body, that we would not go about our worship in a selfish, self-centered way, but that, Lord, we would care about what you care about, and we would bring glory to you by the way we live. Thank you for your word as you so lovingly and gently reprove us. You don't blast us, but you just say, I don't know if you noticed, but I'm not clapping for you. I'm not praising you right now. May we receive your praise. May you be pleased by the way we do Christmas this year. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.